Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. Guys, we've been doing a series lately trying to figure out what is going on. Bank runs, inflation, insolvency, recession. I think this might be one of our final stops in this series of conversations Today, we have Lynn Alden on the episode, who is always rational and gives us her take on what is going on in the world. A lot of yelling going on, but what is actually going to happen? A few takeaways to listen for. Number one, is the Fed balance sheet expanding to infinity? Is that a thing that's happened? We get into the question of what even is on the Fed balance sheet? Why are treasuries worth anything at all? How does the Fed work? Lynn Alden gives us a school lesson, which is fantastic. Number two, we talk about why a regional bank crisis like the one we are seeing right now might domino into the dollar losing world reserve currency status. Number three, we ask if that's a good thing or a bad thing. There are reasons why it might be a good thing, Lynn explains. And finally, we talk about how this bank crisis might impact the 2024 US election and how to prepare your portfolio as a result of everything that's going on. David, this was a great episode. I don't know if it's the final chapter because we always seem to find ways to add new chapters to this series whenever we want to explore more information. But this was a fantastic episode with Lynn that kind of puts a, a bookend on the series that we're doing. What did you find most important from this episode? Yeah, we've had Lynn on, I think, either four or five times now. And I think this might be my favorite Lynn appearance on Bankless. And I think the reason why is because we spanned so many spectrums in this episode. We spanned the spectrum between the small regional banks of the world and then the very central, very singular Federal Reserve. And we drew those connections and how there's a pipeline of capital there and how the sucking of capital away from the regional banks ends up going towards the Federal Reserve banks, but then also ultimately the capital needs to flow past the Federal Reserve, which brings us to the conversation of a multipolar currency base for the world. So the dollar losing its dominance into something else. Bankless listeners can only imagine how that relates to crypto, which is a topic that we talk about. But that's not the only spectrum. We also talk about the spectrum of just the long tail of the economy versus the very central world of politics and how the loss of one impacts the fruition of the other. We also talk about the here and the now, how this is going to be impacting the world in the short term, in the next few months and years. But then also we zoom out and talk about what this looks like 10 to 15 years from now. So Lynn just really helps us navigate a number of different spectrums across a number of different timescales. And I feel has given me and hopefully bankless listeners just a ton of clarity of to so many different issues that this banking crisis relates to. There we go. And if you want the full series, started with our episode with Bology, then Arthur Hayes, then Ben Hunt, then Jim Bianco, now Lynn Alden. This is, I think, a, one of the most comprehensive pictures of what is going on in the U.S. banking system right now and how that will expand and extrapolate over the coming months and years ahead. So tune into all of those episodes. We'll include links in the show notes. One thing I also recommend that you go check out, a lot of the source material for this episode is, of course, published by Lynn Alden on her website. That's at lynnalden.com or go look up Lynn Alden Contact on Twitter. Give her a follow. She posts a lot of these macro charts, and that sort of thing in those two locations. It's definitely worthwhile. 
Guys, we're going to get right to the episode with Lynn. But before we do, we want to tell you about the fantastic sponsors to help you go bankless, including Kraken, which is my favorite way to get my fiat into the crypto system and our number one recommended exchange for 2023. Kraken has been a leader in the crypto industry for the last 12 years. Dedicated to accelerating the global adoption of crypto, Kraken puts an emphasis on security, transparency, and client support, which is why over 9 million clients have come to love Kraken's products. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, the Kraken UX is simple, intuitive, and frictionless, making the Kraken app a great place for all to get involved and learn about crypto. For those with experience, the redesigned Kraken Pro app and web experience is completely customizable to your trading needs, integrating key trading features into one seamless interface. Kraken has a 24-7, 365 client support team that is globally recognized. Kraken support is available wherever, whenever you need them, by phone, chat, or email. And for all of you NFTers out there, the brand new Kraken NFT beta platform gives you the best NFT trading experience possible. Rarity rankings, no gas fees, and the ability to buy an NFT straight with cash. Does your crypto exchange prioritize its customers the way that Kraken does? And if not, sign up with Kraken at Kraken. Hey, Bankless Nation. If you're listening to this, it's because you're on the free Bankless RSS feed. Did you know that there's an ad-free version of Bankless that comes with the Bankless Premium subscription? No ads, just straight to the content. But that's just one of many things that a premium subscription gets you. There's also the Token Report, a monthly bullish, bearish, neutral report on the hottest tokens of the month. And the regular updates from the Token Report go into the Token Bible, your first stop shop for every token worth investigating in crypto. Bankless Premium also gets you a 30% discount to the Permissionless Conference, which means it basically just pays for Itself. There's also the airdrop guide to make sure you don't miss a drop in 2023. But really, the best part about Bankless Premium is hanging out with me, Ryan, and the rest of the Bankless team in the Inner Circle Discord only for premium members. Want the alpha? Check out Ben the Analyst's DGen Pit, where you can ask him questions about the token report. Got a question? I've got my own Q&A room for any questions that you might have. At Bankless, we have huge things planned for 2023, including a new website with login with your Ethereum address capabilities, and we're super excited to ship what we are calling Bankless 2.0 soon TM. So if you want extra help exploring the frontier, subscribe to Bankless Premium. It's under 50 cents a day and provides a wealth of knowledge and support on your journey west. I'll see you in the Discord. The Phantom Wallet is coming to Ethereum. The number one wallet on Solana is bringing its millions of users and beloved UX to Ethereum and Polygon. If you haven't used Phantom before, you've been missing out. Phantom was one of the first wallets to pioneer Solana staking inside the wallet and will be offering similar staking features for Ethereum and Polygon. But that's just staking. Phantom is also the best home for your NFTs. Phantom has a complete set of features to optimize your NFT experience. Pin your favorites, hide your uglies, burn the spam, and also manage your NFT sale listings from inside the wallet. Phantom is of course a multi-chain wallet, but it makes chain management easy, displaying your transactions in a human readable format with automatic warnings for malicious transactions or phishing websites. Phantom has already saved over 20,000 users from getting scammed or hacked. So get on the Phantom waitlist and be one of the first to access the multi-chain beta. There's a link in the show notes, or you can go to phantom.app slash waitlist to get access in late February. Bankless Nation, I want to once again introduce you to Lynn Alden. Lynn Alden is crypto's perhaps favorite macro commentator and also a frequent recurring guest to the Bankless program. And we all know when Lynn comes on Bankless, it's because macro is doing something confusing. Something and just we blew need help. up. <laughs> something just blew up and we need help navigating all of these chaotic waters. Lynn, 
Welcome back to Bankless. Happy to be here. It seems like a good month to be named Bankless. <laughs> yeah, right. Isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, it's the theme of macro at this moment. Lynn, we've been going on this journey with a number of other guests trying to explore really just what is different now. Like what is the summary of this whole thing? And everyone's got different opinions. And so I'm hoping we can actually start with the end, start with the conclusion. Hmm. We've got a number of topics to run through, but I, I'm wondering if you can just start with your high-level summary of the net effects of the events of these last two to three weeks as it relates to the Fed policy, macro markets, or just what the net impact is. Sure. I think the net impact is that small and medium or niche banks are going to be under profitability pressure for quite a while. Some of them still have ongoing liquidity or solvency concerns. Some of the largest banks are pretty much in good shape. They don't really have the same types of risks. And that's kind of the arrangement that they're in. The Fed has been pulling liquidity out of the market, you know, over the course of the past year. And I think they've kind of run into roughly the limit of how much they can pull out. And so, you know, their balance sheet has been down for a year. I think it's probably going to be sideways-ish for a period of time. You know, whether it has to shoot up again will depend on if there's another shoot or drop, another sort of like liquidity crisis. It's partially you know, psychological, basically, whether or not humans do a bank run or, or not do a bank run. So some of that's unpredictable. But I think the general base case is for somewhat of a more sideways liquidity situation, and a kind of a, a slowdown in terms of how quickly they can raise rates and pull down their balance sheet. Okay, so following on that is, I think the the other thing that listeners are and myself are really going to ask for is like, okay, was this like a relatively unpredictably large speed bump, but we are still going forwards? Or are we turning? Is this a phase change in the market? Or did we just hit a speed bump and now we're going to continue in the same direction. I think it's a phase change from going straight up with tightening. So they're busy balance sheet constantly down, like Fed balance sheet and rates constantly up. I think it's a trend change towards somewhat sideways in both of those. I think the balance sheet's probably going to be sideways-ish for a period of time. Mm -hmm. And I think rates, you know, they might get a little higher, but I think the rate of change is slowing down and they're kind of getting closer to their peak. And that, you know, that's relevant for markets. It's obviously relevant for liquidity sensitive assets, you know, Bitcoin, gold, other assets like that. And it's, it's, you know, generally pro equity when it happens. But I think a lot of that might be behind us now. If you go back to the um, September 2019 period, there was a similar event. It wasn't as severe, but basically there was a repo spike Mm -hmm. and basically the interbank lending market kind of broke. The Fed had to come in and that marked the end of their quantitative tightening. Basically, they, they ran into the liquidity floor for banks And the main difference was that back then it hit big banks, whereas this time it hit small, medium banks. And last time it was not accompanied by all these big unrealized losses because there was no record increase in interest rates in terms of how much they raised it in a year. I think the the conclusion that I've been getting to is like this is a very middle of the road outcome, as in like, I don't know whether to be bullish or bearish. I don't know if this is bearish, it seems to be for the long tail of the economy, as I've been calling it, because since the long tail of the banks are now being unprofitable, that probably impacts the long tail of the economy. But also, interest rates are going down. But also, the Federal Reserve balance sheet is, like you said, going to wiggle sometimes in like a, a flat. And so I, I actually am kind of confused as it relates to the markets about like risk on assets, which my portfolio and probably bankless listeners portfolio largely constitutes, but overall for equities at large. So I think this is, is this like a fair sentiment or a fair like conclusion with this is like, no one actually really knows whether this net effect is bullish or bearish. Yeah, I think a middle of the road outcome makes sense. Uh, I think particularly liquidity sensitive assets, it's generally a plus for them. 
But in terms of assets that actually make a profit, I still, you know, the overall recession or not picture is still very relevant. The profit margins are, are relevant. And so we can kind of divide the economy into almost like two sections. There's ones that are interest rate sensitive. And that includes obviously real estate due to how leveraged it is. And it also includes unprofitable tech companies because they're reliant on issuing equity at very high valuations, which is easier to do when interest rates are zero and harder to do when interest rates are 5%. And so basically those are the two areas that have been under pressure. I think they're going to continue to be under pressure. Whereas, you know, there's like travel companies, restaurants, you know, kind of a, the comp- other areas that are, you know, virtually unaffected. They don't, they're not really showing any sort of economic deceleration. And then there's a bunch of things in the middle, like manufacturing and other things like that, that have shown deceleration, but not to the same degree that you've seen in, say, real estate or unprofitable tech. And to the extent that the market is pricing in kind of a top in terms of Fed rates, you know, maybe the first half of this year, maybe a bottom in liquidity, that's generally good for, say, scarce ads that don't have to worry about profits. You know, historically, that'd be gold. Now it's Bitcoin and similar assets where those types of things don't really have to worry about recession, but they do have to worry about liquidity conditions. And those have changed. We're trying to um, square some of this for bankless listeners, Lynn, because when I hear you speak about these conditions and compared to 2019 and say where it's like, this is a liquidity issue, that sort of thing, my mind is put at ease a little bit, or at least I'm much less alarmed than some of the other messages and guests we've had on recently. So just last week we had, or maybe this week before, David, I can't remember at this point, Balaji on. And of course, this is you know sort of the famous Bitcoin to a million in 90 day type of bet whether you take that as 100% conveyance of his ideas or maybe like he's 5 or 10% right, it was a very clear message that the Fed balance sheet is going to print a whole lot of money to make up for this bank crisis, whether you call it a, you know insolvency or the, whether you call it like liquidity issue. And then we had Arthur Hayes on who sort of echoed a similar sentiment, but his time range was larger. He's like, well, you know, the 90-day thing is never going to happen, but I could see Bitcoin to a million dollars in like, you know, two to four years, potentially, if Domino 1 falls, which is kind of bank crisis run on the bank, more money is printed, we get kind of another $4 trillion on the balance sheet, and that causes the next domino to fall, et cetera, et cetera. And then suddenly you have a dollar that has hyperinflated. And then we had Ben Hunt on the podcast. <laughs> this is this is all in a very short period of time, Lynn. So we're not only trying to get like the point, the counterpoint, we're trying to get like, you know, all of the different opinions and ideas on this out so that bankless listeners can kind of make a decision. And Ben was basically like, you can't call this an insolvency at all. He said, this is just a liquidity issue. And he was actually angry, these are his words, angry at those in maybe the crypto space or sort of the hard asset space who were saying, get your money out of the banking system. He said that like they were making things up, basically, that the ship hadn't hit an iceberg. There is icebergs exist, but like the ship's not sinking, everything's going to be okay. And he was very critical of those who are calling for all of the passengers to run to the lifeboats. And then we had Jim Bianco on, <laughs> who gave us kind of another take, which was a little bit between both Ben and Balaji and Arthur. And here we are now, and we're talking to you, Lynn, and trying to just square all of these different ideas. Now, if I, if I were to position you around that kind of Balaji to Ben spectrum, it seems like you are closer to the Ben side than to the Balaji side, but I also don't want to put words in your mouth. So I know you've been observing all of this conversation and have your own takes. What is your take on this whole debate and all of the various opinions and ideas of what's going to happen next? Sure. So I think, you know, between your descriptions, somewhere between Arthur and Ben would be my position, not where Ben is 
similar to Arthur, but my base case would not be a million Bitcoin in four years. <laughs> and then I'm pretty far from the 90-day hyperinflation <laughs> scenario. Okay. So the way I would characterize it is the reason I'm fading the left tail is because I don't really see the balance sheet going straight up you know, anytime soon, even though I don't think it'll keep going down. That's why I kind of refer to it as sideways. And in fact, in the past week, we've seen the balance sheet go down a little bit. But that's, of course, after two weeks of very big gains. So it's still much higher than it was three weeks ago. And if you look at the repo spike back from 2019, what they did was there was a, a pretty rapid increase in the Fed balance sheet for a number of weeks. And then it kind of trended sideways for a period of time all the way into February of 2020. And then, of course, we all know what happened next. There was the March COVID lockdown crash and everything went vertical. And, you know, that was a different scenario. But if that had never happened, the Fed probably would have remained sideways for a longer period of time. And so I think we've seen a trend change. I don't think that trend change is going to be straight up unless there's some other big, you know, psychological issue. Now, when you look out further, I do think this has implications because basically I, I think the long run outcome here is that the Fed will reach a limit where they're unable to keep tightening while inflation does have a resurgence in the years ahead. And I think that that is a pretty pivotal change for hard assets for kind of anti-dollar trades, which is maybe where I probably would align some, at least somewhat with Arthur on that based on your description. As for liquidity versus solvency, I think that's very bank dependent. So that is a big difference. You know, 2008 was a very solvency related issue. Basically, banks made loans and those loans were defaulting and they had very, very thin capital, very thin cash. So they couldn't take much defaults. In this scenario, banks have a lot of cash and treasuries and mortgage backed securities, basically very safe assets in general. They've not made very aggressive lending decisions, but their mistake was buying these otherwise safe assets at very low interest rates that have long duration. So if interest rates go up significantly, those get marked down if they have to sell them between now and when they mature. So it's like you're guaranteed to get your money back. But if you have to sell it before that happens, you could be out of luck. And Silicon Valley Bank had two sides that were extreme. On one hand, they made a very big bet on these long duration assets, right? There are other banks that were more conservative, like JP Morgan, for example, in addition to being as big as they are, they also were careful about getting into long duration assets too much. They balanced their book better. Whereas Silicon Valley Bank was far on the side of like, let's just buy all the long duration stuff, right? So they're getting killed on that side. And then two is your deposit risk, right? So Silicon Valley Bank also was an extreme there, which is they catered mainly to businesses, and so the vast majority of their deposits were uninsured because of the size of individual deposits. And they also were obviously very concentrated into a handful of industries in a region. And so their deposit base was very flightworthy. And so it, it, you have the combination of those two was very toxic. And so they were a, a outlier in terms of their risk. Now, there's other handful of banks that are close on one metric. So, for example, First Republic was did not have quite the same asset side problems, but it had a similar clientele of very high uninsured deposits, and you'd still had long duration kind of illiquid loans. And so that that's a problem for them. Less extreme than Silicon Valley Bank, but still a problem. On the other hand, there are, you know, for example, Charles Schwab is one of the biggest brokerages in the country, and they're technically insolvent right now. And you wouldn't know it by looking at the stock. And so they actually have a similar problem as Silicon Valley Bank, where they bought a lot of long duration assets at low rates that they're now underwater on, and those exceed their capital, right? So they're negative. What makes it different so far, at least, is that, you know, less than 20% of their deposits are uninsured, and they have a much broader diversified base, and, you know, they're Charles Schwab, so they're perceived as being, you know, bigger, safer, probably backstopped, you know, if needed. And so... It's not quite enough to say it's just a liquidity problem, 
the sheer speed with which rates went up and the discount that these otherwise safe assets have on their books have put a lot of banks into a solvency problem if they're forced to sell. But it's not a solvency problem that extends up to the biggest banks. So JP Morgan solvent, Citi's solvent, Bank of America solvent, Wells Fargo solvent, some of the other kind of big top 10 banks are solvent. Even smaller banks, many of them are still solvent. It's very kind of hit or miss. And so I think it's an ongoing liquidity and profitability problem for a lot of banks. And then for certain banks that are outliers, there are some solvency concerns. So this is really interesting. I, I do feel like it's probably accurate that you are somewhat in between a kind of the Arthur take and the Ben Hunt take here. And even kind of uh, you described sort of a mix of problems. There's liquidity problems, certainly. But there's also for some banks, particularly maybe the smaller banks, this liquidity problem because they have a long-term duration bonds that they purchased and those things are underwater. And so the small and the medium banks are feeling the full effect of this. There's this idea that Arthur also expressed, though, is just kind of the idea that this unprofitability may lead to insolvency and that there will be this kind of the sucking sound of like all of this deposits being withdrawn from some of the smaller banks, maybe the most more vulnerable banks on the asset side into higher yield you know, pools, right? In like DeFi, we would call this like, you know, yield pools. <laughs> it's like yield farming, right? And so depositors are taking a look at their checking account and they're saying like, why would I settle for like 0.5% or like even 1% from the bank or, or less when I can go to a money market and get, you know, a cool 4 or 5%. And so there's almost like this slow motion crash happening where liquidity and deposits are flowing outside of these banks. And sometimes that's slow and sometimes it's like fast motion where we see there's some kind of a rumor and there's a run on the bank. And I believe Arthur's thesis here is that that will just continue, right? Up to the point where, you know, there won't be a flat Fed balance sheet it will actually like start to gradually increase upwards and there could be some catalyzing events, other bank runs, that sort of thing that just you know, springboard it up. What about that? Like, how does that get resolved? That's part of what I don't understand is how, you know, the problem of like bonds and treasuries being underwater for some of these banks and the problem of kind of this liquidity of depositors getting sucked into the banks. I don't know how that gets solved. Like, it feels like we maybe band-aided the issue right now, but there are these long-term persistent issues. What's your take on this? Yeah, I think he raises good points, and I think that there's a lot of truth to that. The way I would break it down is that I do think that the Fed balance sheet's going to go up in the longer term, in large part because they'll end up kind of monetizing some of the ongoing large deficits. I think in the intermediate term, it's probably sideways-ish, unless there's some sort of psychological event, right? I think mathematically it can go sideways for a period of time, but you know, specific bank runs are unpredictable because it's you know it's a social media phenomenon, it's a it's a herd phenomenon. So there's certainly outlier cases that could bring forward some of the problems that I think are otherwise going to happen over time. As far as the sucking, you know, that's why I am concerned around small and medium banks, because, you know, if you look back historically, during rate hiking cycles, you know, you have T-bills and money markets, they will offer much higher rates. And usually bank deposits are pretty sticky. People don't shop around their banks too frequently. And so you see a widening gap between deposit rates that don't really move, you know, at least on average. And then you have, you know, all those other things. And it's usually because the hiking cycle doesn't last very long. You know, people are just, you know, super hype. They have other things going on. They don't optimize that. It's not something they focus on. If you start to see basically perceptions around higher for longer, it does start to raise the average deposit floor. And we're already seeing early signs of that. Banks are very gradually raising their deposit rates 
And in addition, that hurts small banks more than big banks because, for example, J.P. Morgan does not have to raise rates because everybody wants an account at J.P. Morgan, you know, so they can just keep them low or raise them very slowly. Whereas if you're a small bank who's dealing with deposit flight, you now have to raise rates, deposit rates. And then the problem is that that affects your profitability, which if it gets bad enough can affect your solvency. And, you know, the funny thing is if you look at the Federal Reserve themselves – they are unprofitable and they have negative tangible equity, right? So what they, you know, part of their setting a monetary policy was that they sharply increase the rates on their, you know, what they pay to banks, what they pay to money markets, while their assets are all these long duration assets. They hold treasuries, they hold mortgage-backed securities. And so the Fed's actually operating at a loss for the first time in modern history. And they have a trillion dollars in unrealized losses. But of course, no one can do a run on the Fed directly. They basically can control their liability side. So, but you basically see a microcosm that shows the extreme event of what a bank can look like if they have to raise their rates all the way up to the current money market T-bill rate. And so I don't think it'll get that far, but basically the longer that they stay up here, the more banks have to do it. Now, the way it can resolve is partially a matter of speed. If they have to raise their rates to like three, 4%, you know, this year, you'll see a lot of banks go completely insolvent, get bought out. There's already been a multi-decade process of bank consolidation, basically smaller banks going away, getting either merging together or being absorbed by bigger banks and becoming bigger banks. So I think that's going to continue, possibly accelerate. Now, if the Fed slows down their hiking cycle, if deposit rates adjust more slowly, basically as certain loans come due and they're redeployed into new loans at higher rates, you know, banks, both their asset side and their liability side can kind of move up together. What really hurt them here was the sheer speed with which rates went up in a given year. Basically, it's, it's the fastest since the 70s in, you know, the number of basis points. And it's the fastest ever in terms of the percent increase, basically, because you're going up from such a small base. And so that's what really hurt banks. Lynn, I'm wondering if you could help us with some maybe classroom time with Lynn for a second, because, you know, I, I have a like now I feel like I have a fairly decent understanding of what's on a typical bank's balance sheet, whether it's you know small, medium-sized bank in the, in the U.S. or one of the big cannot fail, uh, too big to fail banks. But you mentioned something there about kind of the Fed's balance sheet. And uh, I mean, maybe we could kind of look back at uh, this graph here where we see that sort of rise over time. And this is um, showing $8.9 trillion was kind of the high. And that was in April of 2022 or so. And then 2023, March, we dropped down, you know, the quantitative tightening, I believe, was going on. And these assets were leaving the Fed balance sheet. And now they've spiked back up, which looks like kind of, you know, the liquidity you were talking about. Now, more recently over the last week or so, they're a little bit down. But you said something interesting there, which is like, the Fed always operates with an insolvency. And of course, like, no one can do a run on the bank of the Fed. I'm actually not sure how all of that works. <laughs> so uh, can you like explain that? It's like, so what is on the Fed's balance sheet? All of these numbers, these trillions of dollars, like what are they? And how mechanically does it operate at a loss every year? And uh, why can no one do a run on the Fed? Or what would a run on the Fed even look like if that was possible? Sure, happy to cover. And to clarify, they don't always operate a loss. They Ever since September of last year, they began operating at a loss okay. for the first time in modern history. Usually they operate at a profit. And so what the Fed's balance sheet looks like has changed over time. If you go back far enough, it was gold. But if you just go back, uh, you know, before the global financial crisis, let's say, you know, 15 years ago, 
they mostly own treasuries. So they own treasuries. And just like a, you know, a bank. Their own treasuries. Is this correct? It's like Fed treasuries. It's federal government treasuries. Yes, I got it. Yeah, U.S. treasuries. U.S. Which treasuries. Is on, it's a liability for the treasury and asset for the Fed. Right. And, you know, just like any bank has assets and liabilities, a central bank also has assets and liabilities. And so for a central bank, their liabilities are, one, banknotes. So if you have a physical dollar, that's a direct liability of the Fed. Obviously, it pays zero interest rates because you don't, you know, if you hold a physical dollar, it's zero rates and also bank reserves. So, you know, basically when your bank holds some of their cash, they hold it at the Fed and they, you know, depending on the era in question, they do earn some interest rates on that. You know, the third component of liability is a little bit more complex. It's reverse repos, but it's basically another interest bearing liability for the Fed. And so those are the three main types of liabilities. And then their assets historically were treasuries. Ever since the 2008 crisis, it's consisted of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. And so they own a ton of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. Those make up the majority of those assets. You know, for most of the past several decades, their assets paid a higher interest rate than their liabilities because their assets are on average longer duration and their liabilities because of the banknote portion has a zero yielding component. So it's actually pretty hard for their average liability interest rate to exceed their average asset interest rate. But because of the speed with which they raised rates from such a low base this time, it's the first time in modern history, maybe in the 50s they had it, but it's the first time in modern history where their average liability interest rate is higher than their average asset because they're what they pay on bank reserves and what they pay on reverse repos is closer to 5%, whereas what they're earning on their treasuries and mortgage-backed securities is, I don't know, 2%, 3%, something like that, not very high. And so now they're operating at a loss. And in a healthy environment, before they were operating at a loss, you know, the Fed would earn, say, $100 billion a year in that interest spread. And by law, they have to give that to the treasury. So they basically operate profitably, they cover their expenses, and then all of their excess profits go to the treasury. Now that they're not operating at a profit anymore, they basically, they don't have to pay the treasury anymore. And in the future, if they're ever profitable again, they get to pay themselves back for their accumulated losses before they'd have to send money to the treasury. So the short answer is that in the near term, nothing happens to a central bank when it goes technically insolvent because no one can do a bank run on it and it can still cover its expenses. If it goes on long enough, then it starts bringing up questions of Fed independence. If they're insolvent and you know they're having issues like that, then you're probably going to hear from Elizabeth Warren or others every time Powell has to go in Congress and start bringing it up. So there is like a Fed independence question. Independence from what? The political system? The political apparatus? The okay. government, yeah. Basically, the central banks, the reason they have assets and liabilities and that they, they, you know, they generate a profit is to try to make them independent. Now, it doesn't, they're not fully independent because, you know, they have oversight, kind of like how the Supreme Court, right? So they're, they're put in a place, you know, by the Senate and the president, but once they're in place, they operate pretty independently from Congress or from the president. The president can't just call up the Supreme Court, tell them to do something. Similarly, you know, a central bank, their heads are put in place by the Senate and the president, but once they're in place, unless they're doing something illegal, they're now operating somewhat independently. They have their own funding source. And so, for example, during... I believe it's 2017, President Trump was not happy with Powell raising rates, but it's, it's not it's nothing he can really do about it. If it was part of the executive branch, a president could, for example, tell a central banker to cut rates six weeks before an election, right? You know, and boost the chances. That so that's the kind of independence they want to have. That you the president can't directly tell the, the head of the central bank what to do. Now during crises, you know, pandemics, wars, central bank independence kind of goes away mm. more or less. 
So extreme events, you know, that independence is an illusion. But during routine events, much like the Supreme Court and other things, it's almost like a fourth branch of government. And the reason nobody can do a direct run on a central bank is because all banks in the country have to hold their cash at the Fed. There's no alternative. There's no area that they can flee to. And the Fed determines what those are. You know, they can increase the amount of cash that those banks in aggregate are holding at the Fed or they can decrease it. Now, the way that a, a central bank can indirectly have a bank run is if everyone wants to sell the currency. Right. right. Bitcoin is the run on the bank. Right. If we don't trust that Turkey central bank is going to do well, we sell the lira and it gets taken out in the value of that currency, right. not from banks pulling out of their central bank and forcing them to sell Right. and gather realized losses in the way that some of these banks do. Lynn, that is the value of that currency and also the value of those treasuries as well, because they are somewhat one and the same, are they not, right? So like when we look at this graph of the Fed central bank balance sheet, you said all of these trillions in value on the left, these are mainly composed now in the modern fiat Fed, no longer bank reserves. There's a little bit, but I don't know if that's like five or 10% or something like this. It's mainly mortgage-backed securities, which of course, like people know, is backed by some property, some like actual house value somewhere out there. And then it's treasuries. And so kind of the question is like, um, all right, so what what is the value of a treasury because when someone hears about you know central banking for the first time, it, it all seems so self-referential. So your assets are your treasuries. Wait, what? Like, is this monopoly money? Like, so why are the treasuries valuable? Maybe that's my question. Is like, why are U.S. treasuries actually valuable, and who gets to say how valuable they are? Is is that where you start to have external country sort of pressure, where other currencies are like, or like? where the U.S. dollar and treasuries are being devalued relative to other currencies. Tell us about that. Yeah, exactly. So to clarify one point, the bank reserves are a liability for the Fed and an asset for those banks, and they're backed up by treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. So to give you a rough magnitude, there's something like $3 trillion in bank reserves at the moment. Got it. And those are one of the Fed's liabilities, along with physical bank notes and reverse repo. So that's the liability bucket for the Fed. And then their assets are treasuries, mortgage-backed securities. And this recent spike you see on the chart, that's their loans that they've been making. So there's around the margins, there's things like loans and, and assets like that that are liabilities for the bank that borrow the loan and it's an asset for the Fed that made the loan, but the vast majority of their assets are those treasures and mortgage-backed securities. And to answer your question, you know, if you go back far enough, you know, now it's circular, but if you go back far enough, it was non-circular. Gold was at the foundation of the system. Gold is an asset that's not someone else's liability. It's just, it's accumulated energy work. No one can just print more of it. You have to go out and find it. And so gold was the underpinned asset and dollars represented claims, redeemable claims for gold. You know, you could deposit your gold into the banking system, and now you had access to all the conveniences of a bank. And if for any reason you wanted to pull your money out, you could take it out in gold. And the same, and you know, at first it was like free banks where banks held their own gold, and eventually central banks where they held their assets at the central bank, and the central bank held gold. And then as we've moved away from that system, it's backed up by government bonds, which is circular. So you know, basically every asset is a liability. So you know, the the underlying asset for the whole system is essentially treasuries and now mortgage-backed securities too. And those are someone else's liabilities. The treasuries are the government's liability and mortgage-backed securities are homeowners' liabilities. And so you have that circular system. And what determines it is basically international exchange rates, as well as things like prices of real goods and services and alternative monies like gold, right? So you know, if you have a country with a severe currency crisis, like let's say you look at 
Turkey, and you look at the value of all of their money, you know, when they're having a problem and nobody wants to own Turkish paper assets, that'll all decline compared to, say, the market capitalization of gold or compared to the market capitalization of, say, the United States. On the other hand, if they get their act together and they strengthen and they stabilize things and more money wants to go back into Turkey, the overall value of their currency and bond market, their paper assets will increase again to represent that. And what essentially gives a currency some degree of, you know, worthwhileness is that it's kind of like, you know, if there was an arcade and the only way to play all the games was that you needed their token to do it. Imagine if their tokens were not pegged to the dollar, they're just free floating, right? The quality of that arcade determines basically what those tokens are worth if they have the best games and you know they don't they don't change things very frequently you you want to hold you know you're, you're fine to hold those tokens for a period of time whereas if that arcade's on the decline if you know if, if they printed a ton of extra tokens nobody wants to hold the tokens and so all these countries there's like 180 currencies they're basically local monopolies and if you live in that jurisdiction you have to pay taxes with that currency and so all these basically currencies are receipts that say, okay, this is this can pay a tax in this country. So you know, a, if you pick a very small impoverished country, that currency is not going to be worth much. Whereas if you pick a country like the United States or Japan or, or parts of Europe, things like that, that currency historically holds value reasonably well because it's a it's a more stable system, at least outside of war crisis things like that. Bankless Nation, we are getting schooled by Lynn Alden. I love this. This is, um, if you've not heard this before, I think this is a, a brilliant, you know, explanation of what's going on in central banks. So, Lynn, let me sort of maybe try to summarize a little bit of this. So, the U.S. Treasuries are so valuable, and therefore the dollar is so valuable because the U.S. right now has the best arcade in the game, or maybe has for the last eighty years since Bretton Woods. And people want like great games. You could buy Petro with the dollar, all sorts of things. If I were to sort of abstractly, now that the dollar is very self-referential, it's all kind of fiat-based. And if I were to look at a treasury, is this kind of like a metric of? U.S. power dominance, or is it like the U.S. military, or is it the strength of the U.S. economy, or is it just like, I don't know, the games in the arcade is maybe that the better way to phrase it? Like Some people say that the dollar is valuable because the U.S. has the strongest military in the world. Like, is that an oversimplification? What would you say to kind of you know, summarize where the value of treasuries is actually coming from? I would say the economy and capital markets are the number one thing with military being a, a second, and it, it mattered more in the past. And so basically, if you go back to the, the world picture, there's roughly 180 currencies, and they have, a ironically, a barter problem. How does Nigeria trade with South Korea? They don't trust each other's ledgers necessarily, right? Because any either one of them can, you know, can print all the currency they want. And so historically, it was gold. The problem is gold is it's, it's not very quick. And so right now, what they do is they all kind of look at the United States and say, well, you know, South Korea doesn't necessarily trust Nigeria. Nigeria doesn't necessarily trust South Korea. But they both say, well, we'll use dollars, right? Because dollar, you know, the United States is big, relatively stable. And so we can use dollars for that international solving of the barter problem. And, you know, if you look back historically, it was, you know, the United Kingdom had the global reserve currency until roughly World War One, World War Two is kind of this multi-step decline. You had the rise of the United States after World War Two because we were relatively unharmed by the war. We, we emerged by far stronger than anyone else. And so we did the Bretton Woods system, which is we basically said, okay, all your other currencies pegged to the dollar, the dollar will be pegged to gold. And that's how we'll do international settlements. 
that lasted, you know, from 1940s until 1971, when the United States defaulted on on gold because there were too many dollars compared to gold. And so then we've been in this floating era. And the way that the United States was able to maintain that was kind of two ways. One is that there still was no alternative. If you want fast international settlements, there was no currency better than the dollar in the 70s after that default. And two, the United States made deals with Saudi Arabia and other countries to only sell their oil in dollars and to hold a lot of their surpluses in treasuries to basically, you know, kind of kickstart this network effect that was somewhat already there because of that Bretton Woods system. And so now at this point, it's kind of a multi-decade network effect of one, biggest economy in the world, two, you know, reasonably strong property rights, rule of law, depth of capital markets. So no capital controls. So treasuries are pretty liquid market. S&P 500 is pretty liquid. Bond market's liquid. You can buy and sell and move around pretty readily unless you're, you know, a, a pariah state pretty much. Yeah, basically that that's how it's been for a while. It's kind of viewed as almost like neutral territory with tons of depth and stability. Whereas China now is rivaling the United States in, in terms of some scales, but they have capital controls and so it's a and less overall property rights rule of law basically it's more like whatever the leadership wants to do and rather than kind of like independent institutions and open borders and so that's it's not really a good alternative yet although around the margins it's going from say 0% to you know 5% rising in terms of you know usage so i think we're kind of pointing towards a more multipolar world but essentially what gives that strength so far is the size of the economy. And Ray Dalio did some research on this a while ago, where he would map reserve currency countries in terms of multiple metrics. So education, innovation, military, uh, size of the economy, and then their percentage of like world reserve holdings. And generally, the reserve holding is on a lag. So usually education, innovation, economy go up first, and then the currency usage on the global scale follows. And then those things peak and then some decades later, currency peaks and then starts rolling over. So the United States, in many metrics, you know, peaked relative to others roughly 20 years ago. And our currency is kind of rolling over, but it's still at the near the, the peak because it's, it's one of the last things that starts to stagnate because it's, it's got that momentum. It's got that network effect from all those prior decades. You know Uniswap as the world's largest DEX with over $1.4 trillion in trading volume, but it's so much more. Uniswap Labs builds products that lets you buy, sell, and use your self-custody digital assets in a safe, simple, and secure way. Uniswap can never take control or misuse your funds the bankless way. With Uniswap, you can go directly to DeFi and buy crypto with your card or bank account on the Ethereum Layer 1 or Layer 2s. You can also swap tokens at the best possible prices on Uniswap.org. And you can also find the lowest floor price and trade NFTs across more than seven different marketplaces with Uniswap's NFT aggregator. And coming soon, you'll be able to self-custody your assets with Uniswap's new mobile wallet. So go bankless with one of the most trusted names in DeFi by going to Uniswap.org today to buy, sell, or or swap tokens and NFTs. Arbitrum One is pioneering the world of secure Ethereum scalability and is continuing to accelerate the Web3 landscape. Hundreds of projects have already deployed on Arbitrum One, producing flourishing DeFi and NFT ecosystems. With the recent addition of Arbitrum Nova, gaming and social dApps like Reddit are also now calling Arbitrum home. Both Arbitrum One and Nova leverage the security and decentralization of Ethereum and provide a builder experience that's intuitive, familiar, 
and fully EVM compatible. On Arbitrum, both builders and users will experience faster transaction speeds with significantly lower gas fees. With Arbitrum's recent migration to Arbitrum Nitro, it's also now 10 times faster than before. Visit Arbitrum.io where you can join the community, dive into the developer docs, bridge your assets, and start building your first dApp. With Arbitrum, experience Web3 development the way it was meant to be. Secure, fast, cheap, and friction-free. How many total airdrops have you gotten? This last bull market had a ton of them. Did you get them all? Maybe you missed one. So here's what you should do. Go to Earnify and plug in your Ethereum wallet and Earnify will tell you if you have any unclaimed airdrops that you can get. And it also does POAPs and mintable NFTs. Any kind of money that your wallet can claim, Earnify will tell you about it. And you should probably do it now because some airdrops expire. And if you sign up for Earnify, they'll email you anytime one of your wallets has a new airdrop for it to make sure that you never lose an airdrop ever again. You can also upgrade to Earnify Premium to unlock access to airdrops that are beyond the basics and are able to set reminders for more wallets. And for just under $21 a month, it probably pays for itself with just one airdrop. So plug in your wallets at Earnify and see what you get. That's E-A-R-N-I dot F-I. And make sure you never lose another airdrop. Learning about crypto is hard. Until now. Introducing MetaMask Learn, an open educational platform about crypto, Web3, self-custody, wallet management, and all the other topics needed to onboard people into this crazy world of crypto. MetaMask Learn is an interactive platform with each lesson offering a simulation for the task at hand, giving you actual practical experience for navigating Web3. The purpose of MetaMask Learn is to teach people the basics of self-custody and wallet security in a safe environment. And while MetaMask Learn always takes the time to define Web3 specific vocabulary, it is still a jargon-free experience for the crypto curious user. Friendly, not scary. MetaMask Learn is available in 10 languages with more to be added soon, and it's meant to cater to a global Web3 audience. So are you tired of having to explain crypto concepts to your friends? Go to learn.metamask.io and add MetaMask Learn to your guides to get onboarded into the world of Web3. While we've been talking, there's this, been this visual, this like spectrum that's been going on in my head. And when we talk about just the composition of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, this is like the deepest pool in the ocean, the deepest part of the sea, the most liquid part of like the world, right? And really this conversation and this banking crisis started, uh, and I've been using this phrase across a couple of podcasts, like the long tail of banks. And I think the smallest and most regional banks probably as a trend to make a blanket statement, the smallest banks got hurt the worst and the biggest banks got hurt the least worst. And ever since this banking crisis started to unfold, there's been this flight up the liquidity pools, like down towards the gravitational center, which is the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. And the closer you are to the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, the safer you are, like the bigger banks are super safe and the smallest and most regional banks are the ones that are most insolvent or most illiquid. And then we skipped into this conversation of like, okay, well, what happens when you do a run on the central bank? What does that hypothetically look like? And the answer is like, oh, well, you look at external currencies, external fiat assets. And so the visual I want to put in bankless listeners' heads is that like, the kind of like of a of a river and a rivers that like converge and converge and converge. And then they ultimately converge at like the deepest part of the ocean, right? Eventually they, all rivers lead to the ocean. I want to actually go back to the other end of the spectrum where we talked about like the long tail of banks that serve the long tail of the economy. Cause Lynn, what you just said just now is that like fiat demand and economic demand creates fiat demand. But right now, if I'm understanding this correctly, and I want to get your opinion on this is that, since the long tail banks are going to have a profitability problem, they're likely, I'm guessing, not going to be giving out credit. They're not going to be giving a lot of credit out to their particular regions, 
which means like the rural areas of the economy are going to be credit underserved and under growth. And really, when we see this sucking, again, talking about that sucking up to the big banks and up to the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, to me, I hear that we are pulling away growth and innovation from the long tail parts of the economy. And I want to get your perspective, Lynn, on like what that does for the next five to 10 to 15 years of economic growth in the United States. And then after like we talk about this for a little bit, I want to zoom back out to like what that means for the role of the dollar. But first, can you talk about just like the impact of the economy as a result of this sucking away of credit and capital away from the long tail? Yeah, I think it's actually a really good set of questions. You know, if you look at banks nationwide, smaller banks have a higher ratio of assets that are in loans. So they make individual loans to individuals or companies, whereas larger banks, they do lending, but they hold a lot more securities. And, you know, when they do make loans, it's usually to very large entities. So, you know, big banks make loans to big entities and small banks generally make loans to smaller entities, you know, especially when talking about businesses. And so to the extent that the small bank environment is less vibrant, that is generally economy negative, generally negative for smaller businesses, things like that. Now, I think the good news is it's not as though that whole long tail is insolvent. I mean, there are plenty of small banks and credit unions that, you know, they manage their duration well. Most of their depositors are under the FDIC limit. So they're not, you know, they're less at risk of like immediate flight run. And instead, I think the main risk is that as they gradually have to increase their deposit rates in order to not have all their money flow out to JP Morgan or money markets, they're going to face ongoing profitability problems. And yes, they're probably going to curtail their lending, especially if the Fed tries to stay tight and tries to keep liquidity down. And so what that generally does is it points to a period of disinflation and potentially recession. If we're talking six months, 12 months, 18 months, it generally points in that direction. Now, things can change between now and then that could reinvigorate it. So on one hand, you have pretty inflationary factors. You know, the fact that the Fed is not tightening as fast as they were is somewhat inflationary. If we start to see China open up and spike oil prices, for example, that could be inflationary. There are a number of inflationary catalysts and risks out there. And I think the longer term story is going to be probably future waves of inflation. I think the near term story, at least for now, is still some period of disinflation, which is demands coming down, lending is going to go down, And that kind of points towards stagnation, recession, until there's some sort of policy change or something that kind of kickstarts the next cycle. When you zoom out long term, you know, it's interesting. Most countries have fewer banks, even on a per capita basis, than the United States. We're actually kind of an outlier in terms of how many small banks we have, even though the number's gone down dramatically over the past 50 years. We used to have like 13,000 banks, and now we have like 4,000 banks just in the past 50 years. And if you go back further than that, it was well over 20,000 banks. So we've actually, we've gone down quite a bit. But if you look at Canada, for example, they're way more consolidated into their top four or six banks. If you look at the UK, also more consolidated. And I think, I mean, you could argue that our small bank long tail that we have compared to other countries is one of our sources of innovation because they can experiment more, they can specialize more. You know, if everybody has to go to Bank of America, they might not get the lending they otherwise would have gotten. And so I do think that's a, it's not healthy in the long term, but I think it's something that's going to keep continuing regardless. I think that we're going to see that ongoing sucking towards the larger and larger banks and money markets, things like that. Yeah. And since larger and larger banks are generally more like risk averse, and like you said, it's the smaller banks that are willing to specialize and get into the nicks and crannies of the economy 
this seems just like an overall damper on innovation, right? I think around the margin, yes. Yeah. Now, I think that some of these, I mean, obviously, I think Silicon Valley Bank got excessive. Sure. You know, there are other banks that specialize in farm lending. You know, there's all sorts of different pockets. They know their community well. They know their industry well if they specialize. So yeah, I, I do think it's it's not healthy to have more centralization of lending decisions. Basically, access to credit in this system we've constructed that we live in is of significant importance. And so I, I do think it's probably going to slow down. And then also, when you just zoom out in general, you know, we've had this kind of 40-year period of ever lower interest rates and ever higher equity valuations, ever higher, you know, XYZ of real estate valuations, things like that. And I think a challenge that we're now going into a trend where interest rates are sideways to up. And so a lot of these valuations of, say, equities, real estate, things like that, even if they grind along sideways in nominal terms, or even if, you know, if, if inflation's high enough, they could even go up in nominal terms. But I think in, say, inflation-adjusted terms, a lot of these assets are probably not going to perform very well. That can blow up the government deficit because they're kind of reliant on ever larger capital gains taxes, you know, asset prices always going up. And so I do think that the United States does enter somewhat of a situation we've already kind of seen in Japan or Europe of a period of stagnation. That's at least the risk, mm -hmm. you know, if things kind of just continue pointing in this direction. Okay, so that was the long tail of the economy. And now that we're talking about, uh, again, like the macro, let's, let's just ask the question, if we do enter a stagnation era, what does that do for the position of the dollar in the global ecosystem? We have, have a couple of tweets that we're about to pull up, but just like the topic of dollar hegemony, like, is this perhaps a time to rethink the dollar's role in the world? So I do think we're seeing diversification. Now, there's like two sides of this that I think are both wrong. There are people that are always calling for like the immediate end of dollar hegemony right around the corner. And if they've been doing this for 10, 15, 20 plus years. They're always early. It's always hype driven. It's, you know, it's like, okay, 5, 10, 15, 20 years go by. And it's like, no, that's not what happened. Whereas other people are basically saying, no, all that's a conspiracy theory. It's going to stay like this forever. Nothing's going to change. And I think that's obviously, it's very backward looking. It's not dynamic. I think, you know, what we're seeing now, China has rivaled the United States in terms of economy size and some metrics. So they're way higher than us in industrial production, more skyscrapers, more electricity, bigger commodity importer. They're the largest trade partner with most countries in the world. It used to be the United States, now it's China. They're still weaker on military and then they're way weaker on capital controls and openness, right? So, you know, most countries feel more comfortable holding US assets than China. You know, unless you're Russia or unless you're Iran, unless you're basically outside of that Western sphere and you're looking eastward now. So I think what we're kind of trending towards is a more multipolar world where instead of the United States kind of being the only game in town, I think we're, you know, especially with the war and the seizing of reserves, you know, countries don't want to have all their assets you know, in the United States sphere, they want to diversify their assets. They want to have diversified payment systems so they can't be cut off from global trade. They don't want their assets seized. And so I think we're seeing kind of these regional poles of power mm -hmm. where the United States is still a, you know, currently the leading currency around. You know, it's it's better than the euro in many ways. It's more open than the yuan. It's still the number one or number two economy. And then you have these other ones that are competing around the margins, especially if you're, you know, culturally or economically tied to China more so than the United States. And we've also seen a rise in gold. So, you know, from the 70s until 2008, you had a decline in gold ownership among central banks globally. And they basically shifted out of gold and more towards dollars. Ever since the 2008 financial crisis, so the bottom, you know, central banks got down to like just under 30,000 tons in 2009, 
And then ever since then, it's been a V-shaped recovery. They're just increasing their gold tonnage over time. They're back up to something like 36,000 tons. And that's kind of like, you know, neutral ground. You know, if a country holds gold reserves and it actually self-custodies them, they now have this like sanction resistant asset that is no one can print it. It's slow, but but at least it's theirs and they can over time use it if they need to. And so I think we're seeing a little bit more of a diversification where, you know, Brazil says, I want to hold dollars, I want to hold gold, you know, I'm willing to hold some Chinese yuan as well, because they're a big trading partner. And I think you just see that that a little bit more global decentralization. And then I'm, I'm hoping you can make the case for frequently on Bankless, we talk about stable coins and crypto rails as a really good way for the United States government to maintain supremacy of the dollar. And that's perhaps why they should adopt these systems. But I actually want to leave that conversation just aside because it's actually adjacent to the topic at hand. I'm hoping you can actually present the bull case for actually the United States not having the world's global reserve currency? Like, why might this be good for our economy? Why might this be good for the actual people of the United States rather than just like, you know, being able to fund and finance our military? Like, why should we be uh, perhaps interested in exploring this future? Yeah, it's a good question. Because when people talk about dollar hegemony, they implicitly assume it's a bad thing, should it be lost? Mm -hmm. And they don't ask for who and why. And so basically, the way that this works is that, you know, if you go back to the Bretton Woods system, when it was all pegged to gold, the downside of the system is that in order to maintain it, the United States got emptied out of its gold reserves. We went from like 20,000 tons of gold down to like 8,000 tons until we defaulted on the system. So that was the cost of maintaining. We got a lot of advantages from it. But we also that was our cost. We had to basically keep outsourcing our gold in order to you know maintain it. And when we pivoted towards putting the treasury at the heart of the global system in the 1970s, our cost, you know, so most currencies, the value of their currency in large part trades on how desirable it is to hold it. But a lot, another big factor is trade balances. You know, if Japan sells way more stuff than it buys globally, there's basically more revenue flowing into Japan. And that tends to, to keep the value of their, all else being equal, their, you know, the value of their currency, you know, reasonably strong. And if a country starts running persistent trade deficits, usually their currency weakens. And that has a natural effect where they're able to buy less, they're able to import less. And at the same time, their ability to export gets more competitive because they're poorer and, you know, their labor is now cheaper and it might be more cost effective to put a factory there, you know, assuming they still have their operating socially. On the other hand, if a country has a trade surplus, you know, usually their currency will appreciate and that'll increase their import power and decrease their ability to export things uh, cost effectively. And so that can actually shrink their trade surplus back down over time. So you kind of have this natural you know, they kind of want to keep pushing towards a, a neutral trade balance through currencies. Now, one thing that happens as a problem is if a country has an extra monetary premium placed on it, if more people want to hold dollars, even if they're not trading with the United States, then what it does is our currency is always a little bit stronger than it should be, which means it's, you know, we always have a little bit extra import power, but we also have a little bit less export competitiveness, all else being equal. And so it kind of contributes to us having a structural like five decade long trade deficit, mm -hmm. which basically means that we've kind of hollowed out our industrial base. So our ability to make cars, our ability to make 
engineer, you know, precision engineering equipment, our, our ability to do X, Y, Z has been heavily impaired. It doesn't mean we can't, you know, if, if some company's particularly good, they can still be in the United States, but it's just all of the headwinds are against us in that regard. And it's way more cost effective to produce electronics and all sorts of stuff in China, Taiwan, all these other countries. And it's gotten to the point where it's gone on so long, where it's almost a national security issue, where we can't even, you know, if we want to build electronics for our military, if we want to build electronics for this, you know, if China cuts us off, you know, we can cut them off and cause them national security issues on certain things, but they can also cut us off and cause national security things. And so we've hollowed ourselves out enough. And that's actually a downside of the system that basically having dollar hegemony is really good for the military industrial complex. It's really good for DC. It's really good for the banks. It's really good for, it's kind of neutral to good if you work in an industry where you're not trying to export kind of lower margin things. So if you're you know, if you work in tech, if you work in healthcare, it's probably pretty good for you. Whereas if you are a blue collar worker, or you basically if you want to make stuff in America and sell it abroad, that's, you know, it's been negative for that group. Right. And it's kind of been negative industrial policy, pro-financialization policy. So if that were to reverse, it'd be very painful at first. But then depending on how we handled it, it would also allow us our economy to be more balanced again, the way mm-hmm. it was decades ago. Yeah. And so the idea here is that because the United States dollar is the world reserve currency, we export dollars instead of exporting products, instead of exporting nouns, widgets. And so because we can't compete, our own manufacturing, our domestic manufacturing can't compete with our ability to export dollars. Why can't that be true? Because the Federal Reserve can print dollars for free, where it takes labor and materials to produce widgets the Federal Reserve can just press print and export that instead. And so this is like where ex- American like exceptionalism comes in. We just have all these free tailwinds because the world start, like demands our dollars. And so like that's the argument for why perhaps the dollar should not be or ought not to be or perhaps could not be the hegemonic currency of the world. And Lynn, when we had you on previously, I asked you the question. We've talked about this a few times at Forum Banklets, but it's been a while. I asked you the question, did the role of the United States dollar as the global reserve currency perhaps impact the 2016 election with Donald Trump versus the, you know, the, the Democrats. And, and the idea here is that he won a bunch of swing states that were previously blue that swung red, that were all manufacturing states. And this is why I started this series of questions with talking about the long tail of banks and the long tail of the economy. I'm wondering if you see similar political divisions as a result of this banking crisis, banking insolvency, because if all of this credit is getting sucked away from the long tail and pulled into the Federal Reserve and perhaps a different currency, might this also create uh, more further left versus blue divisions in the economy? Is this something to be worried about? Do you have any perspectives here? I do. I think this does contribute to populism, and it can take different forms. Obviously, one of them is the Trumpian wing of uh, the Republican Party. That's one of the forms of populism. And I do think that's the type of things where you suddenly get more anti-establishment surprises Mm -hmm. with how elections can go and with things like that. And, you know, I think Luke Groman, the analyst, made a really good observation, which is basically the petrodollar system was probably a very good idea strategically during the Cold War, which is basically that the United States secured, you know, energy secured kind of its, you know, position in the Middle East, kind of pushed out Soviet Union, all made sense. After the Soviet Union fell and, you know, we're now in the, say, the early 90s, 
that was probably a time to pivot and change the system, make it more balanced. But they didn't do that. And so ever since then, the system in many ways has been harming us more than hurting us. Now, it's still helpful for the military. It's still helpful for certain kind of establishment interests. But it has been pretty negative for, let's call it the heartland, the industrial part of the economy. And so we've, we've kind of been in this position where if you if you're an executive in a multinational corporation, if you work around DC, if you work in tech or healthcare, you're probably doing pretty good, finance. Whereas if you're outside of those kind of segments, it's been this long period of stagnation and these other countries kind of eating your lunch. And that does cause, you know, just overall more polarization. And also because most people can't go into the detail of why that is, but they know something's wrong. And I think you see it come out in various ways. It, you know, there's certain types of left populism and certain types of right populism, but the general theme is kind of populism and anti-establishment and people know something's wrong and then they express it in different ways. And I do think that's a risk and it's something that as long as we have the system kind of unchanged, I think that problem is going to either remain or possibly get worse. This is really fascinating because before we started talking about like the dollar hegemony and the dollar is the reserve currency of the world, you were kind of painting a picture of a very choppy decade, right? Mm. That could have some form of like, you know, inflation on the one side and then deflation recession on the other side. And what keeps going through my head is whenever the Fed is printing or whenever there's talk about inflation or deflation or recession is like, this ain't going to be good for wealth inequality. <laughs> in the United States. That's what I always think. I mean, just like, let's say the money printer goes back on, Lynn, in sometime over this decade, which it likely will, if Arthur Hayes is right, or Abology is correct. We know where the a money printer inflation primarily goes, and that's the asset prices, right? We have a just a, a delta between the wealthiest in the United States and like the least wealthy that hasn't been seen since what? Like, I don't know, the 1920s before the Robert uh, Barron era. And so as you're painting the picture of the next 10 years, that was, it's just looking very bleak from a wealth inequality perspective. And that's why we see wealth inequality spills out into our politics and all of these social issues. I had never actually considered, I think, or thought deeply about the idea that, well, maybe the path out of wealth inequality and some of the social fracturing we see right now is the loss of the dollar as the reserve currency. That's kind of an interesting thing. Like maybe the antidote is the dollar is no longer the export to the world. And we kind of reverse this and get manufacturing blue collar jobs back into the United States. But I also have to like pause it and sort of wonder if reserve currency status isn't somewhat like a ring of power. Do you know, like, just like Lord of the Rings style where you have the ring of power <laughs> and you know, it's better for you to like give it up and it's hollowing you out on the inside and you're like turning from looking like a hobbit to more and more like a golem every single day. <laughs> but it's just, it's, you can't give it away. You can't like cast it into the fire. And that is the core problem because it is such a powerful tool, isn't it? And I don't know, maybe this goes back to Dahlia's book. I don't know if there's been in the history of empires rising and falling, if there's ever been an empire who's cast the ring into the fire and said, no, no longer, we no longer want to be the reserve currency of the world. We'll, we'll hand that off to the a succeeding empire. And so I wonder if the United States is just in this impossible state. Do you have any reflections on this? Yeah, it's an, a great set of questions. And one is that large organizations rarely disrupt themselves, whether they're governments or corporations, they usually get disrupted rather than disrupt themselves. And so they generally don't see the flaw in their current thing. They assumed, okay, it worked 50 years ago, it's still going to work, and it's just not working anymore, And so, they, but they don't really realize that. And to use the Lord of the Rings analogy, 
you know, I think that the challenge is that if they were to pivot from a position of strength, then they could make use of that fact, right? That, that basically if they were to support global payments, diversification of reserves, that'd be probably ironically a good thing for the United States in the long run, but they're probably not going to do that. And so basically like, you know, in the books and the movies, Bilbo, he was one of the ones that was pretty good at getting rid of the ring before it really, you know, he, he got some corruption, yeah. but he but he got, <laughs> but he didn't turn to Gollum. He got rid of it. Whereas Gollum's an example of someone who held it way, way, way too long. And so, you know, if the United States were to say, you know, pivot after the Cold War, that'd be the best time to pivot. Mm. If they were to make more mm. practical decisions to pivot now and kind of, you know, kind of solve that problem now, it'd be more like, you know, Bilbo or something like that. But as long as they kind of continue down this path, it's more likely that the Gollum route, it's, 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 it gets messier. And, you know, as far as money printing goes, I think the challenge with that narrative is that it's one variable among many. So when you look at Japan, for example, you know, no balance sheet has gone up quicker than Japan's. You know, their broad money supply has been actually slow growth, but their central bank balance sheet has gone up tremendously and it's over 100% of GDP. And yet they have less wealth inequality than the United States. And the question is why? And it's, of course, because they're doing other things. They spend very little on the military. Their healthcare per capita is way lower, even though they live longer and they're on average older. Basically, it's their fiscal things that determine, in large part, you know, they still have, I mean, there's still, there's poor Japanese people, there's rich Japanese people, it's a capitalist system, but you have those less extremes, a higher average median. And in the United States, because a lot of our budget goes to the military, we have the highest per capita healthcare costs in the world. There's a number of factors that apart from just the money printing, that contribute to wealth concentration. And so a lot of that is kind of just individual policies that we've decided and that's also that tends to be a, an artifact of being a global reserve currency that you look more like an empire where, you know, we project outward while kind of forgetting about our homeland. So, you know, the Brown University estimated that we spent five point eight trillion dollars now on the war on terror. That's, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, all these other stuff. And that's partially from the war itself It's partially from a permanent increase in expenditures. So permanent DOD increase, permanent Department of Homeland Security, veterans benefits, interest on the debt. 5.8 trillion while at home our bridges are like you know on average very old and you know increasingly problematic our infrastructure is not great it's kind of like we're so focused outward that we hollow ourselves out inward in multiple ways and i think that's that's the challenge and it's ideally we would pivot out of that and focus more domestically but i i think that they you know they rarely pivot from, from a position of strength that really is the story of empires, isn't it? I mean, you know, the Roman Empire and, and fighting wars and, and conquering lands all the way up to England and sort of forgetting about uh, the domestic side of things and what actual Romans need in the city of Rome. You think we were to learn by now. So, Lynn, how does this reserve currency thing work out then? If, if you were to give us kind of the summary of, of this part. So you're thinking that there is a, a much more multipolar world with respect to the reserve currency. So do you see the dollar diminishing as a percentage of use you know, worldwide and the yuan sort of taking a stronger role? Gold reserve currencies going up? Or is there any position for um, you know, digital gold type crypto monetary systems here? How do you see this evolves over the next uh, 10 to 20 years? And let's just assume that the US is kind of taking the fate of Gollum and trying to grasp at the ring and, and hold it tight and not freely give up reserve currency status. So what happens with the world reserve currency mix, do you think? So I think the general trend now, when you look out far enough, it's, it's one of those things that people, 
you know, it's not a lot can happen in a year, but a lot can happen in 10, 20 years. And so once the further out you go, obviously the hardest to predict, but essentially the general trend I think is that the gold trend is probably going to continue ever since it has since 2009. So especially kind of BRICS nations will be more likely to want to hold more gold than less gold. So I think that that ratio will keep inching higher. The yuan is starting from a very small base, but I think it's generally going to increase somewhat. It has been for the past few years. There's been recent announcements that are likely to continue accelerating it. And so I think that'll become an increasingly non-trivial percentage. I, I, I don't think it'll be anywhere near the dollar anytime soon. But the fact that it comes off zero diversifies things somewhat, both in terms of payment, you know, the ability to, for countries to do censorship resistant payments with each other, as well as, you know, what they hold their money in and therefore, you know, what countries they're exposed to, who can seize their funds, that kind of thing, just more diversification. As far as, you know, digital gold, basically, I do get the question on Bitcoin, for example, and the issue is that it's still too small. You know, even though Bitcoin is pretty big for many of us, it's still small in terms of, you know, global oil trade is over $2 trillion a year, for example. And we're talking about an asset that's hundreds of billions of dollars. It's still small enough that whales can move it. And so basically, I think that as it gets bigger, that does become more interesting because you have a reserve asset and you have global payment possibility. But I think that, you know, people expecting that to happen in a year or two or three, it's premature. And we'll see how this technology matures and solidifies and gets bigger to the extent that it might become relevant. And going back to your prior point about stable coins, you know, it's interesting because that's that's also an area that, that's gone against the trend, which is that, you know, central banks are mildly de-dollarizing over the course of a number of years. While stable coins, you know, the the people are not de-dollarizing, right? So people in Egypt are not de-dollarizing. People in Nigeria are not de-dollarizing, even though many central banks around the margins are slightly de-dollarizing. So if you look at stable coin issuance, it's over 99% dollars. And a lot of that is, you know, some of that's obviously DeFi and stuff, but a lot of that, especially on, you know, the lower fee, that's a lot of that is these developing market use cases where they want dollars, but they don't trust their local banking system. And should the United States support that, that I think has run away ahead of it. There, there's still a lot of people out there that want dollars. Now, we talked about actually the, the downside of so many people wanting dollars. We just right. covered all that for the United States. But for, in their mind, basically, the more that they support and allow those stable coins to exist, it does, I think, you know, keep the dollar going for a longer period of time because there's more hands out there that, that want to hold it. Whereas if they, you know, if they get super aggressive and they cut off stable coins from, you know, the offshore banking system and things like that, that can perhaps further accelerate the diversification that we're going to see probably among currencies. So I, I think what timeline we look out at depends on one, technology, you know, the evolution of technology over time, and then two, political decisions of whether or not they realize certain things, they want to promote certain things, or whether they want to pull back. And a general challenge overall is that in periods where you have high sovereign debt and some sort of inflationary pressure, you're more likely to get capital controls, you're more likely to get, you know, lending restrictions, things like that. I think we're, we're seeing it around the margins with, say, you know, Operation Choke Point, things like that. And I think the base case should be to expect that to somewhat continue. And that's a risk that we all have to deal with to varying degrees. Yeah, in a multipolar world, I don't think it takes too much imagination to understand that crypto probably does pretty well in a multipolar world. But Lynn, I do take your point that right now the market cap of Bitcoin just isn't sufficiently large to support, you know, an entire country's or or just like a net effect of migration from you know dollar dominance to multipolar that also includes Bitcoin. But 
and this will be speculation on the future. So we, of course, cannot read the future. I still would expect that like in a world where there is demand for a diversified currency base and Bitcoin is at the still somewhat cute market cap of something like $600 billion, $700 billion, there would still be like a magnet pulling that thing upwards into the multi-trillion dollar market cap regardless, right? I think so. And, and yeah, that's a, yeah. a combination of that demand of just the nature of a multipolar currency world benefiting Bitcoin, plus, again, technology moving digital and then also just the general downtrend of fiat currencies. And then also just the passing of time. Like give it two to four years. Bitcoin is in a, never mind the last 15 or so months, Bitcoin is in a 15 year bull market. And so fast forward to two to four to six years, this perhaps is when like the liquidity profile of Bitcoin could support something equivalently large as an entire nation's like demand for its currency. Do you agree with this sentiment? Yeah, I think the long arc of time points towards this this becoming relevant on a global scale. It's already relevant for people, right? It's relevant for individual Nigerians, individual Argentinians, individual people in Lebanon. It's already kind of a you know global money for people, and the largest pools of capital. It's still you know kind of too small for them. But I I think you know central bankers and sovereign wealth funds would be insane not to be looking at it and studying it. And you know smaller countries have an edge where they can you know. It could be relevant for them sooner than it's relevant for the big countries. We've seen that perhaps with El Salvador. We'll see how that, that story unfolds. But you, you kind of see, you know, these rebel countries can kind of get into it a little bit early. We've already seen, you know, probably like North Korea, unfortunately, is into it because it, for them, it's like a tool, kind of like buying drugs on the Internet, whatever. There, there is a tool, kind of like how in the 80s, drug dealers were early adopters of pagers. Um, you know, it's just, it, it, that's how it works. It's, it's useful technology. <laughs> Yeah, it's just kind of how it works. When the internet came out, you know, the first thing it, it was used for was, you know, the things that are not the most savory. That's kind of how this works. So there's some early adopters that have a stronger catalyst to get in there quick. But basically, as it gets larger and more liquid, less volatile, more widely held, more understood, that's when I think it, it starts to get relevant on the on the sovereign scale. So these rebels are defecting first. <laughs> Lynn, this has been so much fun. Thank you for explaining all of these things and rounding out some of the conversations, the series of conversations we've been having. I got to end with this. So what do we do about this? We've had you on before and you've talked about sort of a portfolio composition and certainly for the 2020s being long on harder assets, the digital or also, you know, not the digital. And we have rebel countries defecting. Do you have a rebel portfolio prescription, <laughs> Lynn? How do we... Uh, how do we weather the next 10 years of uncertainty or even the next regime change, the next wave of what the Fed is going to do next? So I think it's going to look different for a 25-year-old and a 75-year-old. But, you know, I've kind of pointed towards, say, a, a three-pillar portfolio, which is one pillar, you know, profitable equities, you know, kind of, you know, 401k stuff. Another pillar of commodity or alternative money exposure. So energy producers, copper producers, steel producers, gold, Bitcoin, that kind of asset. And then the third pillar is cash equivalents, T-bills, money markets, things that are, you know, you pay your bills with, that you have like a volatility reduction that you can then rebalance into the other pillars should there be volatility events. Obviously, younger investors can push out further on their risk horizon. Older investors have to be more careful of the volatility they take. You know, a challenge in our space is that 
because of how extreme these events are, you have to worry about idiosyncratic events like bans or being severed from financial system, things like that, which is why I, you know, even when someone's very bullish on an asset, they should consider the tail risks and what they would do if certain tail risks materialize and therefore have enough diversification that they're able to recover, they're able to take action, that they can, you know, make use of that as it unfolds, even while, you know, naturally, Wealth tends to be built by taking pretty significant bets, having a vision, if you're right, whereas wealth is kept by some degree of diversification. And so every investor, depending on their age, depending on their conviction, their knowledge, they can determine how concentrated or diverse they want to be. But I think that's the general thing to do is be focused on these kind of hard assets, things that have real value, you know, 10, 20 years in the future, and then just being liquid and being you know, conservative enough to realize that it's going to be a volatile journey. Because you said the words tail risk, I got to ask you, do you think crypto is the ultimate tail risk asset? That is basically the thesis that Arthur Hayes conveyed. So let's say there is some tail risk event, having a bankless money outside of the existing system. Of course, like if you buy oil or gold or those sorts of things, generally you're buying IOUs for these items. Whereas with a Bitcoin or an Ethereum or some cryptocurrency, you can hold the genuine artifact yourself in a self-custodial way, do you think there's value in these trying times? I do, yeah. And so, you know, we've already seen cases where, for example, uh, you know, a woman from Afghanistan left the country, made this perilous journey, like Alex Gladstein's covered it. She gets to Germany. She has Bitcoin with her. You know, she got robbed. She had to, you know, all this stuff happened, but she still has her 12 words and, you know, can access it. I know a person who, you know, left Venezuela with Bitcoins, right? You know, the mining equipment was seized, but they couldn't get the Bitcoin and you're out. So if you can physically get out, you know, the fact that you have this kind of portable, you have access to a portable ledger is very useful. And, you know, historically gold has been that tail risk and it can be domestically, right? Because you have this asset that doesn't need the internet, you know, it's resistant to all sorts of things, but you can't really bring it globally. You know, you can't bring a large amount of gold through an airport. You can't, you know, there's all sorts of restrictions. You can only bring small amounts. Whereas what makes, say, something like Bitcoin useful is that if, you know, if you know what you're doing, you're tied into this global ledger and value flows more internationally. So I think it's, it's absolutely tail risk insurance, especially for anyone who wants to be mobile and have their own self-custodial wealth. That's right. When they call us doomsday preppers, I say it's just tail risk insurance. That's all. That's all crypto <laughs> is. Lynn, it's been so much fun to have you on today and to walk through all of that. I learned a lot, as I always do, mm -hmm. spending time with you. The always rational, Lynn Alden, we appreciate you coming on Bankless once again. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Risks and disclaimers, guys. Of course, none of this has been financial advice. We don't know what tail risks await. We only know they probably are coming. Crypto is risky. You could definitely lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.